Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the first episode of a shiny, sparkly, brand new season, number seven, of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. I hope you enjoyed last week's dive into Pack Up the Plantation Live. It was nice to get into some of the live stuff in sequence, and I think John and I will go back maybe to cover the official live leg in its entirety. I hadn't intended originally to cover those, you know, the live stuff and and those sort of non-studio recordings um, until the end, but it makes some sense to do album reviews of the live recordings in the correct order. So from now on, I think that's what we'll be doing. Uh, Today's episode covers the first track from Let Me Up, I've Had Enough, the jagged, abrasive Jamming Me. Jamming Me was one of the very first collaborations with Bob Dylan, pre-Wilbury's obviously. The Heartbreakers had toured with Dylan on the True Confessions tour and Tom was hanging out with Bob at the Sunset Marcus Hotel in Hollywood. I'm not sure if this was during the break between the two legs of the tour or afterwards, but as Tom relays to Paul Zolo in Conversations with Tom Petty, we wrote a couple of songs that day. There was another one called Got My Mind Made Up and that was on one of his albums, Knocked Out Loaded. I produced the track. The Heartbreakers had also done a version of the track which wasn't included on the album, but later was included on the playback box set. Tom goes on to tell Paul about the way Jamming Me evolved by saying, I took really just the lyrics and completely rewrote the music with Mike, and then I sent it over to Bob to see if it was okay, and he said, yeah, sure. So that's the extent I talked about it with him. And I just love the sort of the utterly magnificent Dylan-ness in that response. It reminds me a little of the time a producer said to him during a session, Hey, Bob, you know what would sound pretty cool there? A Salvation Army band, to which Dylan simply said, well, go get one. It would be really interesting to hear, too, the original arrangement of Jamming Me to see how different it became once Tom and Mike had rewritten or at least restructured most of it. When Paul asks Tom, when you write with Bob, is that something where you're exchanging lines? And his response is, yeah, just like you'd think. I remember we would write a lot more verses than we needed. We did that in the Wilburys, too. It's a great honour to work with someone so great, and more than an honour, it was fun, because he's really good at it. The track hit number one on the US rock chart and peaked at 18 on the Billboard Hot 100, making it the eighth highest charting single in the Heartbreakers catalogue. Despite this, the song was overlooked for 1993's Greatest Hits album, which also included a track, Even the Losers, that was never actually released as a single. And I'm sure that my season-end co-host John and I will definitely be digging into that decision and what could have been behind it when we cover the Greatest Hits record later. The song opens, as so many Heartbreakers rockers do, with a fill from Stan Lynch on drums, but it's accompanied by what I think is only the second pick slide on guitar in the the Heartbreakers catalogue that I can remember. Uh, It's a slightly awkward timing too, which comes in on the three before the intro chorus riff begins on the following one. And, you know, the chorus riff is very simple indeed, with a rolling bass underneath it, which again is mixed pretty high. Um, We hear some organ, which is mixed down low, and Benmont plays a, a nice little descending lick on the piano in the last two bars. And that lick sounds an awful lot to me like one of the fills he adds into Dog on the Run, the original song featured on Official Live Leg, but which was never recorded in the studio. It's in a different key, obviously, but it has the same cadence and the same basic descending structure. So there may have been a little bit of musical recycling going on there. At this point, I do want to introduce a theme that's going to most likely run through most of the songs on this album, production. 
I don't love the production on the album overall, and I think that the intro to this track is one of the examples I'd point to as to why. It doesn't have the same sharp separation of sound that all the albums produced by an excellent producer did have. So if you think about how amazing Torpedoes or Hard Promises sounded, um, or the clarity and precision on Full Moon Fever, Into Great Wide Open, or Wildflowers, and then compare that to the opening of this song, sonically, right from the get-go, there's a slightly cluttered, almost like a muddiness to the sound, which blends everything together in a way that makes it its more difficult to pick apart the individual parts. And just sonically, it, just, it doesn't feel as vibrant and as sort of big as this song maybe could be if it was just mixed differently. As the up-down main riff kicks into the first verse with the bass following, the rest of the keyboards are stripped away and you get a lot of space in this section of the song. It has a really raw power to it, reminiscent of The Stones or even a band like The Clash. Um, we also get something that Christopher Walken's Bruce Dickinson character on SNL would very much approve of. More cowbell. When we hit the second part of the verse, the first take back lines, uh, Benmont's organ is reintroduced lightly with a single note persisting through those final four bars. There's also another cool little descending piano run, but it's played in the lower register. And again, it's one of those things that gets buried a little bit by that sort of, you know, I'm going to say muddy production. We then head into the chorus, which is again really stonesy, a, a very rock and roll section, um, especially with that chord change from AE to DA. It also has some sumptuous piano licks in there with a big sweep to end the section. I like the rhythmic change in that middle section of the chorus too, underneath the, well, you can keep me painted in a corner, which almost has a feel of like a mini bridge um, inside the chorus. And I don't recall them doing that before in a song, and it's one of those little, ooh, that's kind of neat, moments which are sprinkled all over the Heartbreakers catalogue. The second verse proceeds exactly as the first did. There's no additions, with the only real change being the lack of the organ and a few sort of little piano pieces in there before another glorious piano sweep from Benmont, which leads us into the second chorus, which is again basically a carbon copy of the first, with Tom just sort of enunciating some of the phrases slightly differently. The bridge is a big minor key switch, over which Tom opines about Iranian torture, Steve Jobs, and front-wheel drive vehicles. So this song becomes one of the very, very rare instances of being dated because of the lyrical content. And it's, that's something that Paul Zolo sort of uh, points out to in, in uh, conversations with Tom Petty. You know, they're pretty specific references to the period during which the record was being made, with the Ayatollah of Iran being a prominent and infamous figure in world news at the time. You know, Steve Jobs was obviously huge news also. And these cultural touch points root this song very firmly in, in the sort of mid to late 80s. It's a pretty solid line, though, referring to the apple in young Steve's eye. I do like that one. Uh, they also have that sort of 80s-era feel in the spoken word vocal style during this bridge, and it doesn't land quite as sweetly, maybe, as the same style in uh, Here Comes My Girl, but it does provide some sonic movement in a song that has more or less been pretty straight ahead through most of it. So coming out of that bridge, we get the first part of the chorus again before the song leads into the final verse. And if you listen to the left channel underneath that, that last quit jamming me part, there's a super cool little guitar fill from Mike. The last verse is once again that stripped back part with little variation, and we head into the final chorus expecting the song to repeat to fade. We do get a killer little Stan Lynch hitch step fill underneath that final painted in the corner, so listen out for that. Uh, but overall, the verse sections are pretty much the same as are the chorus sections. Alrighty, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. Um, your question from the end of season six was this. Which legendary artist covered the title track from Southern Accents in 1996? Was it A, Waylon Jennings, 
B, Willie Nelson, C, Johnny Cash, or D, Chris Christopherson? The answer, of course, was The Man in Black. It must have been quite a trip for the band to record that song, but have Cash sing it. You know, so obviously the Heartbreakers were the house band for the album, um, Unchained, with a handful of other musicians dropping by to sit in. But that version of the Heartbreakers in 1996 all played on Cash's cover. Uh, and I will say that although I love Johnny Cash, I do struggle a little bit with this cover as I love the original so, so much. Johnny's vocal is much different as you'd expect, especially when he drops into that low register. But again, it just, I think because I love the original so much, especially so some of the live versions, <laughs> and again, just as much as I love Johnny Cash, there's just something about it that doesn't quite land for me. Although I do like the musical arrangement on that one too. You know, this arrangement fits his vocal brilliantly, and it must have been a ton of fun to reimagine the song for a different singer. It's also really cool how Johnny Cash changed that drunk tank in Atlanta is just a motel room to me to was just a motel room to me. And I think I remember reading somewhere that that line really connected with Johnny and reminded him of his younger self, which is pretty cool, right? It's Johnny Cash, man. Johnny Cash is cool. Your question for this week is this. How many Tom Petty solo and Heartbreakers studio albums contain exactly 15 tracks? Is it A, zero, B, four, C, one, or D, three? All right, back to the song. Um, during the fade out, there are some, you know, there's some great fills from both Mike and Ben Mont, but they're pretty quiet. Uh, and there's another sort of really big Stan Lynch fill right near the end of that that very, very long fade. It's probably about a 40 second fade out. And something I'm going to chat to John about, um, and I actually might try cutting this in myself to see how it sounds, is instead of fading out, I wonder what it would sound like if they'd ended on that. You know, it might just sort of just end it right there as a really hard stop. Um, when the song was played live, it had the big sort of stadium rock ending, which works well, but I'm always left feeling as if the song just sort of peters out a little bit. And unlike much of their previous work, there's very little build in this one, and at times, it almost has a slightly unfinished feel to it. Maybe it's the unusual way the song was written and arranged, or maybe, maybe it's a product of that lack of an external ear, but for some reason, I just always feel a little unfulfilled when I listen to the album version of this song. The live version from the Fillmore in 97, which was included both on the live anthology and the latest Fillmore release, are both superior to the studio recording, in my opinion, and give the song more of a, like a jam feel, no pun intended. And so the lyrics in this one did cause a bit of a stir, and I do wonder if that's a part of the reason it was left off the greatest hits. You know, take back Vanessa Redgrave, take back Joe Piscopo, take back Eddie Murphy, give them all some place to go. Tom tells Paul Zolo, that was all Bob, that verse about Eddie Murphy. Uh, which embarrassed me a little bit because I remember seeing Eddie Murphy on TV really pissed off about it. And he goes on to say, I had nothing against Eddie Murphy or Vanessa Redgrave. I just thought what Dylan was talking about was media overload and being slammed with so many things at once. And with all the pop culture references pervading the lyrics of this one, you can see how it definitely fits that commentary about modern life and the oversaturation of media that was happening during that period. Um, I, again, I do think that the lyrics are, they do sort of have that scattergun feel where it wasn't written as sort of any sort of real narrative. And as Tom says, they probably wrote more verses than they needed. So I'm, I'm sure that verses or even specific individual lines were just picked out and sort of assembled in, you know, some kind of order. So again, it has that feel of not really being, it certainly isn't a narrative song. And it just has a bit of a, a bit of a disjointed feel to it. And the song was played uh, live sporadically in 87 and 89 and 97 
before becoming an, a virtual ever-present on 1999's Echo Tour. Okay, Pettyheads, that's all for this week. Um, as I mentioned, the production on this album and definitely on this track leaves me feeling, you know, a bit unsatisfied. And again, that's a personal preference thing, perhaps, and maybe other people love the production on this record. I do think this was a, a definitely a reaction to the prolonged, arduous process of getting Southern accents recorded and the sort of the multiple different producers and styles that were on that album. Um, of Let It Up, I've Had Enough, Tom says to Paul Zolo, the number one characteristic is that there are only five heartbreakers on this album. There are not outsiders on it whatsoever. There were no producers. It was just me and Mike, and we were doing whatever we felt like doing. And so while this approach can sometimes work, my opinion is that it doesn't, it doesn't always land on this record. Um, an outside producer will often push a band to tighten up a section or suggest an edit or a retake where a band might think they've nailed it or even sort of just, yeah, as we've seen on previous Heartbreakers albums, say, well, maybe that track's not as strong as this track, so maybe we'll put this track in instead. You know, a producer will also have their own characteristic sonic preferences and will be a little more versed maybe in that side of the studio craft. Not that I'm suggesting that Tom and Mike don't have that, you know, those chops, but I do think it's telling that this is the only time they ever use this approach. To my mind, it doesn't work as well as the times they brought in a different set of ears to have some distance from the band and from the songs. So that way you tend to get a, a, you know, a more honestly critical eye and ear on proceedings. So do I think this is a bad song? Nope, it's catchy and it gets your foot tapping. It's also a fun live song and I really do like the bridge in this one as well as some of the ripping piano that Ben Montench is laying down. But is it a great heartbreaker song? I would say definitely not. And as I said previously, I think it suffers from slightly weak production that doesn't get the best out of the track. Um, I think the video's quite fun. It's a, a neat concept of all that static, and it sort of feeds back into that the, the noise of the, of the of the culture of the 80s with Tom sort of ripping pieces of the static and throwing them down. It's, it's a cool video, right? But with all that said, I'm going to give Jamming Me a, a 7 out of 10. Uh, please remember that you can continue to support humanitarian efforts in Ukraine in many different ways, uh, please do so if you have the means. I always add a link to the Red Cross donation page in the episode notes, um, so you can find that there, and I'll continue to do that. Uh, the Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check them out on Twitter, at Deep Dive Podnet. Uh, I'm sure you'll find something there that you like. And there's a really cool new podcast, actually, on the network. Um, it's a really interesting uh, way to sort of uh, tackle a, a music podcast, because um, what they're doing is they're, I think that the plan is for them to just cover the album um, Lulu which was a, an album, a, a sort of a collaboration album between Lou Reed and Metallica. Now, I've never heard that album because I'm not a huge fan of Lou Reed and I really don't, I'm, I'm definitely not a fan of Metallica. But it intrigues me because, you know, a lot of people say that, that album really wasn't very good. Um, so for fans of Lou Reed and Metallica to sort of join forces and, and start talking about this album specifically and to have the whole podcast be about this album, I think is a very interesting take on the, uh, on the format. So I'm probably going to check that one out and I'll, maybe I'll report back on, on what I think. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. And you can always find me, of course, on YouTube. So go follow, like, subscribe as applicable. Um, please leave a review or a rating and please tell people about the show if you like it and you have other people in your life who might want to listen to me yammer endlessly on about Tom Petty and how much I love his music. Uh, the Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with The Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please use legit streaming platforms. Don't download, folks. Don't pirate um if you're looking for merchandise please go to tompetty.com for the official stuff 
Uh, also, don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook. If you're not already a member, they're excellent fan communities and I really enjoy spending time in there. Until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy, and I'll be back with you next week to talk about the second track from the album, which was also the second single, Runaway Trains. Bye-bye.